Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Hi, this is Hugo Che, and this is the Traveling Image Makers podcast, the show where we interview famous and not so famous photographers and discover what compels them to travel many hours and cross many borders to get the shots. This week, I have uh, a good friend of mine, a great guest that was on the show already, I believe, three times. The last time I had her on the show, we were recording live in Venice, in St. Mark's Square, at the end of our uh, workshop that we led together there for the Venice Carnival. And uh, it was kind of a strange situation because it was just when the COVID pandemic was about to explode. It was our last day in Venice. We just made it at the last minute, being able to do the workshop. And then it was we ended it on a Saturday and on Sunday, everything was shut down. So we'll, we'll talk about Venice again, maybe just to remember all the good times we had together. We also talk about other topics to, today with my good friend Darlene Hildebrand. Hi, Darlene. Nice to hi, see you again. Hi, Hugo. <laughs> yes, I remember doing that uh, recording in the square and that morning it was freezing cold. <laughs> it was freezing cold. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was February 20. The second, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, right? So the, the Venice Carnival was supposed to to go for three more days, but then they, they shut everything down because they were starting to, to get a uh, huge increase of cases here in Italy. And then basically a not couple of weeks later, we went into full lockdown and we've been going in and out of various levels of lockdown since then. I was hoping to be able to go to Venice again for the carnival this year and maybe meet you there again. But alas, no, uh, there was no carnival. There were just a few uh, private, uh, mostly virtual celebrations. I know a few people that we met back in 2020 there were in Venice in the days of carnival with costumes but they were all locals mm. so the locals were allowed to go to venice but me being from a different region i was not allowed to go there not to mention of course well, i will foreigners. totally go again anytime so it was a great experience and um you know photographing i wasn't sure well, i kind of knew what to expect because i've seen pictures of carnival and i've seen your pictures and so on but i was i was not prepared for the number of photographers that were there that's the thing that that struck me was like it was like I think we talked about this last year too when we did the interview in the square is that when I went to Pushkar Camel Fair it was the same there was like almost as many photographers as camels it was ridiculous yeah. in Venice for the carnival at least for some um, subjects some some models with costumes and so on there's more photographers than than models you kind of have to uh, elbow your way in unless you know where, where to go or you got the, the right connections to to get them for a private shoot and and so on and if you do it's uh it's a great it's pretty unique experience right exactly that's, that's, that's why i hang out with you i'm gonna stick with you because 
Hugo speaks the language and he can arrange all of these things. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so uh, let's uh, let's keep talking about Venice. Uh, and what was really special about it? Uh, um, I know you that there are other things that you love aside from the the carnival itself, right? We went to see that uh, guy who does those uh, puppets or marionettes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. He was, um, well, how many years has he been doing that? Um, but he's very passionate about making these marionettes and it's something that's a dying art. Yeah. Uh, so th there's, a lot, there's a lot to see in Venice. And um, of course, the carnival is a very busy uh, occasion. I mean, Venice... Uh, unless this, these days, I mean, it's pretty empty, but normal times, it's always chock full of tourists. But one thing that many people don't realize is that like 90% of those tourists always go to the same places. Mm. Everybody goes to St. Mark's Square. Everybody mm. uh, goes to the Bridge of Sights. Everybody goes to the Rialto Bridge. But there's a ton of little places in the, in the alleys, uh, side streets and so on, which are pretty empty even during the carnival. So it's always a, a place I love to go to. And I would just mention the fact that just yesterday, we are recording this um, at the end of March, but just yesterday was the official birthday of Venice. Mm -hmm. Venice was officially founded in March 421 CE, wow. which means that it, the Venetians just celebrated their 1600th birthday. The 1600. That's crazy. I mean, I'm in Canada, right? And we just celebrated uh, a couple of years ago our 150th birthday as a country, never mind as the city. So the age of things, you know, in Europe are it's, it's unfathomable for somebody from North America because we just don't have that kind of history. Like even in um, in the U.S., there's just you know things that are old, much older, and Eastern Canada, there's things that are much older. I'm from the West, where a hundred years ago, you know, we were a fort. We we were a fur trading fort, right? So to put it in perspective, um, we just don't have the kinds of historical architecture and and things like. That's why I'm so drawn to places like Venice because it's so different than what I have in my backyard. Yeah. And when the Venetians, they celebrate their 1600th birthday of their city, the Romans are there saying, please hold my beer. Rome was founded, <laughs> uh, let me, about almost 1200 years before Venice. So wow. they say, oh, well, how is the, you're young. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, that blows my mind. Uh, let's put Venice aside for, for a moment. I'm hoping to go there again next year in February for the carnival. Definitely hoping that with uh, vaccinations and everything. I, I'd like to add, like, the thing that you mentioned about everybody goes to the same places, and I think this applies to, you know, wherever you travel, right? Get yeah. off the beaten track a little bit. Get off the tourist track. And that's where you're going to find, you know, like the less expensive tourist restaurants and where the locals eat or even like photographically if we're talking about things to to photograph you're going to find the real essence of that place you know like i stayed at um for a couple of nights after the workshop at a uh airbnb place with a lovely family right and you get to see sort of how the they live in the places when you stay at 
with, you know, an Airbnb or an Airbnb. And I do that a lot when I travel wherever I go, um, you know, and try and get into the back streets and find out, I want to go, you know, if I'm staying in a hotel, I'm going to ask like the doorman, I'm not going to ask the concierge or, you know, these guys, I'm going to ask the doorman, where do you go eat lunch? And then I'm going to go eat there. Definitely. One one thing that, I mean, some people, I mean, I'm not generalizing here, that's kind of a a joke, but some people definitely think that Venice is kind of an open-air museum. Right. Right. It's like a place that, I I don't know if it's true or not, but I I know a photographer who is Venetian, and he was telling me that he had customers, he he organizes uh, tours in the city. For, for tourists, for people coming from uh, from abroad, from, from the rest of the world. And he says, I, I got people asking me, where does Venice shut down? Where, when, they, when do they close the doors? <laughs> I said, this is not Disneyland. This is not even Pompeii. Right. Pompeii is, a, is an open-air museum, but Venice is a living city. There are people living here. It's, about, it's been a bit depopulated in, in recent years, but... There's about at least 30,000 people who actually live in Venice. Nowadays, most of them are employed employed by the tourism industry. But there are uh, bakeries, there are lawyers, there are uh, uh, butchers, um, all kinds of people doing all kinds of jobs and living in Venice uh, the, the whole year round. It's, it's not a museum. Anyway, um, I, was, uh, I was about to say that... Uh, uh, you were, you were comparing the, the history of Venice with the history of Canada, mm-hmm. which, of course, is much different, right? But uh, I don't know much about Canada, and uh, I've never been there. Well, oh, sorry, <laughs> forgetting. I've been to Toronto uh. for one day, <laughs> if that counts. That's so the, my... rest of, the rest of the country would say that you haven't seen Canada then. No, I, mean, I know, I know. I mean, I've been to Toronto for one day. That, that's been all of my exposure to Canada so far. But I, I would love to to see more. I'm, uh, I'm mostly a landscape photographer, and I would love to go to, to visit some of those awesome uh, landscape locations in the Rockies, the, the lakes, uh, and those peaks and forests, and and so on. I'm uh, absolutely blown away. So still on my on my bucket list. And I know you're not a, a landscape photographer, uh, at least a pure landscape photographer. You've got different interests but I would like to know from you maybe some some tips about uh, locations that are about Canada where to go shoot what's what's interesting to see there especially in your part of Canada because mm-hmm. again people might come to Italy and not realize that Italy is not it's a lot of different cities with different cultures even different languages at some point different types of food and so on but Italy is pretty small compared to Canada so What's great about Canada is just it's it's a huge country which has many differences. So I would like to to get from you some insights mm. about what's so great about your Canada, especially your part of Canada. Well, I've been across country and I've been to almost all the provinces. We have ten provinces and three northern territories now, um, and then the only one I'm missing is Newfoundland in the far east, which I still want to get to one of these days. Um, but to put it in perspective, I remember I did this as a, as a map once upon a time. Um, Australia fits inside Canada and there's still lots left over, right? And mm-hmm. in terms of, like you said, Italy, right? Like we have five time zones in Canada. So from east to west, 
Um, we have, you know, uh, Pacific time on the West Coast, which is Vancouver, which is a really popular city to visit because it has it has everything, right? Vancouver has culture. You know, there's the Vancouver Art Gallery. There's there's the ocean, of course, right there. You're on the coast, but then there's also mountains, right? So there's very few cities that have ocean and mountains, and Vancouver has that. You know, you can go skiing within an hour of Vancouver, right? Um, go a little bit farther in, you've got um, into the interior of BC is one of my favorite areas, which is called the Okanagan Valley. So it's actually between the coastal mountain range and the Rocky Mountains, right? So the Rocky Mountains is where um, a lot of Europeans visit because it's Banff and it's famous, it's Lake Louise, and, and those places are beautiful, absolutely. But it's, again, it's more like, you know, Banff is more like Venice, right, where less of the population that actually lives there is natural Banff people, um, I'm not sure what you'd call them, Banff, Banff, Banffians, um, Banffers. versus <laughs> Banffers, yeah. Um, there's less people living there, and a lot of them are involved in tourism, or also um, involved in wildlife and preservation as well, because it is a national park, right? Banff is inside one of our national parks. So it is preserved, and the animals are protected, and things like that, but it's it's a beautiful area, right? There's skiing, there's hiking in the summer, all those things. But in between those two mountain ranges from the coast to the other side of BC, right? Because the Rockies run between Alberta and, and British Columbia is this valley. So in the valley, it's, it's farming and it's, um, there's fruit orchards and vineyards, which I was mm -hmm. telling Ugo about earlier. And he was surprised to learn that in Canada, we actually have two wine regions, and this is this is one of them that probably produces the most amount of wine in Canada. So I would love for you to come, and I will take you in to taste some Canadian wine because we have lots of, of great wines. I was hearing about ice wine some time mm. ago that right that you that you have there, but aside aside from having I mean, coming there and tasting good wine, what's um, photographically speaking? Uh, what can you just describe? I can imagine typical so because you're in this valley regions in Italy yes, or vineyards, France. orchards. Um, there's a lot of lakes as well, so there's lots of beautiful lakes. Um, you know, you and you literally see the mountain ranges on both sides, right? You're sort of in this foothills area with a plateau in the middle between these these two mountain ranges. So you get the beautiful lakes where you'll get, you know, sunrise, sunset, reflecting on the water with the mountains sort of off to the side or in the background, um, the vineyards. I love to photograph in, um, I like to go there in the fall uh, for two reasons. Number one, it's harvest. So you get the fall colors, you get the, the leaves on the vines are changing. They turn orange, red, beautiful things. But then they're also harvesting the grapes and you mentioned ice wine. So if you could go there, um, late September-ish usually is around the time when they're they're harvesting, and I was running one of my workshops in that region as well. So I would incorporate shooting the the fall and the vineyards. We would visit a couple of the the wineries and vineyards and be able to photograph like a winemaker and actually wander in among the grapes and photograph there. But just watching the the crushing of the grapes and the process of the harvesting and photographing that. Just seeing it is actually quite interesting as well in terms of, you know, how they how they go about it, taking a tour through some of the vineyards. Um, and um, a lot of things, what I do there is we do lots of early morning stuff, right, with the light coming up over the hills and then lots of blue hour stuff where it's beautiful light. Light painting is great there because... 
there's um, lots of dark sky areas too. So that would be end of September would be the perfect time of the year to yep. to go there because yeah. He, it's not too really, cold yet. It's not too no. cold yet. And the, the valley itself actually doesn't get a lot of snow or doesn't get really cold. So if you want to experience a Canadian winter, that, that's a, a more gentler way to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to come to the middle of Alberta in January. No. No, yeah. Um, we, we usually here in Europe, we harvest uh, grapes at the, more like to the beginning of September or late August, especially now with the, Warming, warming of the climate it tends to be earlier and earlier every year. But it depends also on the type of uh, the, the variety of grapes. Like you, they typically harvest white wine before, earlier during the right. season, and red wine, red grapes later during the season. Right. And, um, and you mentioned yeah. the ice wine. That's actually a late harvest. So there's, yeah. there's late harvest, um, and then there's ice wine. So the ice wine, they actually let the grapes freeze, um, and they harvest them while they're frozen, and it's they have to. It's a particular temperature. I don't know all the details, but they pick them at a particular temperature, and they've been frozen on the vine. And what happens is there's they're very um, they're full of sugar, right? So you get this more um, sweeter type of like it's like a dessert wine, right? Yeah. So you can you can go there. You, you can go visit wineries and uh, also do a wine tasting. You know. Another favorite area of mine in Canada, and again, this is something that people miss, um, either misinterpret or, misinterpret or don't understand the vastness of Canada, you know, because they'll book a trip to Toronto and think they can take a day trip to Vancouver. Well, Toronto to Vancouver is a five-hour flight, right, just to give you an idea of the size, right? So um, another, some of my other favorite things, like I'm a people street photographer, and one of the places that I really love for street photography is actually Quebec, um, Quebec City and Montreal. And it's interesting because they have a much more European feel, right? They have a more French, like uh, Quebec City is a walled city and you get cobblestone. So it's very much like you're, you're in France or, you know, a small town in anywhere in Europe, right? So I love photographing there. Um, and then if you go all the way to the east to what's called the Maritimes, we have our eastern provinces and then you get into like lobster fishing, um, Nova Scotia, PEI, um, they go to Newfoundland, you get the puffins, right? So people will go to Newfoundland just to photograph the puffins and some of these things, you know, like the fishing boats, we have like the, um, the blue nose, which is actually on our Canadian, one of our Canadian coins. It's a very famous boat that's parked in the, one of the harbors there. So there's more history out east and you'll get, it's almost like, if you, have you ever been to the States in around like Maine or um, mm -hmm. yeah. um, that area? Like it's very similar to like like Massachusetts with like New Martha's England. Vineyard, yeah. something like that. Yeah, where you get like these really cool little villages. Um, Lunenburg, right? Look up Lunenburg, um, Nova Scotia. It's a really colorful town. All the buildings are painted different colors. And I've, I've shared photos of that before and people try to guess where it is and I'll get... I'll get Iceland, actually. They'll say Iceland, or they'll say, like, Norway is a common one because it looks kind of, like, Nordic, you know, and it's got these colorful buildings up into the hill, and it's very, um, it, it's wonderful to photograph, especially, you know, if you go sunset again in blue hour because they've got these tidal pools and ponds, and you get the fishing boats with these colorful buildings and reflections. It's awesome to visit. Peggy's Cove oh. is a famous lighthouse as well out that direction. 
Yeah, I mean, Nova Scotia is, means New Scotland, right, in, in late. Right, yeah. I guess there are some similarities with Scotland, yes. uh, which I know you, you, you know and like, and mentioning those colored houses in the arbors with the fishing boats. Um, it's beautiful. Reminded me of Portree, which is the main town in, uh, in the Isle of Skye that has this key with colored houses and the fishing boats in front. So in my mind, I have that, that image, I guess. It's pretty similar to what you, you can find there. You made me want to, to come to Canada, but um, <laughs> I'm easily convinced to go anywhere. <laughs> I would love to, definitely. To I love Toronto. I mean, even if I've seen just for, for a, not even one full day, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a lovely city as well. So... There's a lot there. I mean, it's a big city. I'm not a super fan of, of Toronto. Like, we've got the tower. You can go up the tower and those kinds of things. Um, I've been to lots of big cities around the world, and I personally would not rank Toronto in my top mm-hmm. ten. I, I would put Vancouver, um, oh, yeah. possibly Montreal, but I would not put Van- Toronto in my top ten worldwide. Yeah, I heard great things about Vancouver, so maybe one day. Oh, sushi? Oh. I like food. I like food. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so now I would like to completely change topics uh, and talk more about uh, photography or more specifically about processing photos. And uh, I just uh, saw that you were doing a, a number of uh, tutorials, you can call them tutorials, about um, uh, artificial intelligence as applied to, to photography, to, to processing photos, especially because you are um, working with um, uh, Luminar, right? Skylum, so, yeah. Skylum, yeah, Skylum is the company. Luminar is the product, correct me if I'm wrong. But they have this uh, new artificial intelligence AI features, which uh, I think they're, they're pretty cool. I was also, um, just yesterday I tested this new AI-based feature that they introduced in Adobe Camera Raw, uh, where you, which is called super resolution, and you can take photos and increase the resolution four times. And using artificial intelligence techniques, you get a lot of detail. I mean, you don't get pixelated images just by increasing the resolution. You increase the resolution, and you actually extract a lot of detail from those. So mm. I thought, well, artificial intelligence is getting big in photography, whether it's in the in the device that is taking the photo, because now there's all, all, all this talk about computational photography, like in newest iPhones or even Android, Samsung models, you can, uh, they have multiple cameras that take different shots of the same scene at the same time, and they combine them with some computational power, call it artificial intelligence or not, but still. And then there's a lot that, as you've been showing, that you can do in... Um, in, in post-processing. Uh, so can you maybe tell us what, what are the possibilities there? What can people do with those artificial intelligence tools apart resizing images? In terms of resizing, I think the one, like I haven't tried that new one in Photoshop yet, but I think it would be similar to um, a Topaz product called Gigapixel, right? Mm-hmm. And I know some people like, um, I think Pete Vandenay in um, Belgium has used that. Um, I haven't done any of the upsizing stuff myself, but I've used a lot of the AI tools that you mentioned inside of Luminar. And I just I just opened up Luminar so I could actually look through them. Uh, some of the ones they've had for a while are things like Enhance AI. And 
the reason that they, they've introduced a lot of these things is to make processing easier and speed up the process for people that, you know, would rather spend their time shooting as opposed to sitting in front of the computer. Um, but it's also for, like, the program can still work manually. You can still edit all of these things yourself. So there's a misconception that, okay, you're just going to put your picture in and it's going to, you know, pick something for you and do it all, but you still have full control, right? So even if you want to do something like a sky replacement, which they now have in Luminar AI with a reflection, and it's, it works really well. Um, I've actually tried some images in Photoshop with a sky replacement, and they don't have reflections yet in Photoshop, so you'd have to do that manually on another layer and mask it in. Um, and I've tried actually one from Venice. Uh, do you remember when we were shooting those mm -hmm. bird characters yeah. in that um, sort of old building? There was a piece of the sky that was cut off. So there was main sky up at the top, and it was all blown out because it was overcast day. And then there was a, a building that was sort of showing us piece of the sky between two like walls. And Photoshop, whatever I did, did not pick up that extra square of the sky. It didn't pick it up. And I put the same image into Luminar, and the sky replacement picked it up. So I was really impressed with it. Um, I think, you know, the AI stuff is not perfect. It's just like using a, like an auto of any kind of auto mode on your camera, right? It's going to be interpreting things for you. But as a photographer, it's, it's your job to then input what you want into the program and tweak it to, to your needs or to your taste, right? So if the AI isn't doing what you want, it's a starting point for you to then adjust from there. Yes, definitely. Uh, it, it needs the input of the, the... The thing about AI, I don't like to call those things AI, artificial intelligence. Um, I've, been, I've been working in the, not directly in the field of artificial intelligence, but when I was at university, we we were studying the work of Marvin Minsky, who was the pioneer of artificial intelligence. He was uh, working at MIT back in the 70s and 80s, right? And there was still a lot of, was a lot of philosophical debate about what actually constitutes intelligence. What, what does it mean to be intelligent? Right. And I think now maybe the term intelligence is, a, of course, is, is a bit used by, by companies to sell their products to say we, we have some intelligence, but intelligence to me requires understanding conscience of the problem that you're trying to solve. Those tools to me are smart, but not necessarily intelligent. Uh, I don't want to go into a debate about what actually constitutes intelligence. <laughs> that would be a bit outside of the um, of what I want to discuss here, but what I wanted to say is that uh, essentially the intel there's still you still need the intelligence of the photographer. The photographer needs to to know what they want, right? Yeah. You need to know what what you want. You need to know uh, what looks good. You need to know what maybe looks natural in a specific context if we're talking about sky replacement, and so you need to drive that tool. Yeah. The tool is going to be smart and intelligent in that, okay, it can realize that if you have a photo uh, with uh, a sky and you have some water in front of it at the bottom and there's going to be a reflection, and it's going to understand, oh, this, this here needs to be a reflection. I need to take whatever I put in the sky, flip it, 
treated so that it matches the fact that the water is a little bit blurry, there are ripples on the water, and make it look natural. And it helps a lot, but still, it's up to the photographer to decide uh, does this sky here actually make sense in the right. context of the scene or not. And that's one of the things I teach when I'm teaching this part of the software is, you know, to pay attention to the original direction of light. Because when you, if you have the sun on the left and then the sky replacement you put in is on the right, the shadows are not going to match up, right? So you have to really pay attention. Or if you have an overcast day with no shadows on the ground and you put a bright sky, bright blue sky with a sun in, it doesn't make sense either, right? So they have to match. Like you said, it has to make sense together. So the program is doing its part by analyzing the image. It finds the horizon for you. Um, you can adjust these things, uh, you know, up or down with the horizon. You can move the sky left or right now. And it's flipping the, the sky and putting it in the reflection for you. So it's really smart. Um, and I found that I've tried a few different images where, you know, the water was smooth versus the water was rippling. And it did a really good job of replicating. But also if there was like, um, I had one where it was a stream with a rock sticking out of the water. And it knew not to put the reflection over the walk, uh, over the rock. So... Mm -hmm. It's pretty, it's pretty, in terms of intelligence, good at analyzing those things. Is it perfect? No, but it's also relatively new technology, right? So I, I can imagine where they're going to go with this, and um, I can see Photoshop coming out with, with the reflections soon. But I feel like, like Photoshop is actually playing catch-up, particularly, you know, with Skylum, and also you mentioned this, this enlarging thing that Photoshop is now doing, Topaz has had Gigapixel for a few years, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like Photoshop is now trying to catch up to these other things. It's like, just to go on a sidetrack here, like Canon and Nikon are catching up to Fuji and Sony in the mirrorless world. Yeah, yeah, I think so as well. And of course, the, there can be a lot of controversy about uh, those things like Skyrim. I, we discussed during this uh, podcast episode, and I said, I, want, I don't want to talk about the possible <laughs> controversy. Is it legitimate? Is the kosher right. to replace the sky? Right. I mean, I would, to each his own, I mean, I would let people do what they think is, is good. And uh, we, we are travel photographers, we, we travel to places. We don't have the luxury to go to a place and get the perfect sky. And if not, we can go there again and again and again and again. I was um, just, uh, uh, I know I invited you to join Clubhouse and you still have uh, Yes, I still there. have to do that. <laughs> you still have to do it. Today, just today, I was doing, we have this uh, regular room that we do every, um, every Friday about travel photography with our common friend, Kev Dadfar and Ralph Velasco. And today we were talking about uh, locations in the UK, right? And one of the questions, and I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but please forgive me. One of the questions I asked Kev and his friend Jordan, who was uh, there with me, is like, I've been to London many times, but for example, I've never been on top of the shard. I said, mm. is, that, is that a good, do you recommend some people who go to London for the first time? Go to the Shard to take a photo of the London, the land, the, the view of the city from that height. It's the tallest building in London. Or go to the London Eye. Right. He said, yeah, sure. But uh, it can be disappointing if you go there just once. Because you might go there once and the conditions are not good. The sky is not good. The light is horrible. It's raining, whatever. Right? And Kev said, I have a... Um, 
a permanent member card for the shard. I can go there Aha. whenever I want. Aha. And I go there often if I see the conditions are right and I want to take a great photo of the London skyline from above. I just go there. I get on a train, go there and, and, and go up because I've already paid for it. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, we've, Kev lives right outside of London. We, we don't have that luxury to, to exactly. go to London every day. And if we go there and maybe the sky isn't right... I think it's okay to to replace the sky as as long as it's uh, as long as it looks good and it's uh, reasonably realistic. Well, and it brings up an interesting point because also in northern Alberta where I live, we actually get a fair bit of northern lights here, right? The aurora borealis, and I mean Norway is famous for that too, right? And mm-hmm. the further north you go, the more it's going to occur, but you also are not going to get it in July. So people realize they don't realize. Okay, I want to see the Northern Lights. I know we know you have it in Northern Canada. They show up in July because they don't want to come here in the winter. Well, there's no Northern Lights at that time of year. Um, it happens usually between you know October and April. So you're going to have to come during the right period, the right time of year, and then it's hit and miss, right? Like you can't guarantee that uh, when you book your trip to come here that the Northern Lights are going to occur, right? So I have the same advantage in this area where I have an app on my phone that tells me when the KP index is up. And if I choose to hop in my car, I just have to get out of the city because the city lights interfere with capturing it. I just have to get out of the city about, you know, 30, 45 minutes and I can get Northern Lights, right? Whereas you can't get on the plane and and be here like that. I I went to Norway for the Northern Lights, but I missed them. There were none. (laughs) There you go. Did you go at the right time of year? Yeah, it was February, but it was just okay. that there was no, no, no sun activity. solar activity. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. when there was a little bit, it was actually cloudy. So There you go. Ahead. See, that's a perfect example, right? So you can't plan yeah. that. But then, okay, we don't want to get into the controversial. Is it okay to then take a sky that I shot with the Northern Lights and put it in there? You know, then people are going to talk about that's cheating. Well, then let them talk. <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, that, that, that's all I'm going to say about this. Again. Okay. That's, uh, well, unless you want to... to you can either confirm it. or deny. <laughs> now, another thing, of course, you you said you're mostly a, a people photographer, right? And yep. also these AI tools also help a lot with uh, with people photography, the specific yeah. plugins or... Well, I use Luminar predominantly for, in my own workflow, as a plugin for Lightroom. So I will actually take an image that I want to, you know, take a little farther. So I do my basic edits in Lightroom. And then if I want to take it a little farther, I find that Luminar gives me a way to do more of an artistic edit. Um, it can do things that you can't do in Lightroom. So even if you have an older version of Lightroom and you don't have Photoshop or you don't know how to use Photoshop, because a lot of people, like a lot of my students, are using like Lightroom 6, for example, right? So they're not paying the membership fee. And they don't want to learn Photoshop, but they want to do things like um, add a texture overlay, for example. So you can do that. Um, that's another one of the tools that Luminar can do that Lightroom cannot do. Um, you can also, the portrait tools that you mentioned, the portrait AI. I actually did a couple of videos on that um, on my YouTube channel. So um, I can mention that for you if you want to mm-hmm. send people there to have check that out. Because the portrait AI inside of Luminar 
is again it's automated so it has things like iris ai you can brighten up the irises of the eyes you can enhance the irises meaning sort of sharpen like the the lines like the cones in the eye to bring out more of that sparkle you can whiten the eyes whiten the teeth darken the lips smooth the skin and i've tried other like smooth you know skin smoothing things like portrait the, the portrait software and I didn't like it all that much because I find that when you take it to extreme, a lot of them make the skin too blurry and lacking of any type of texture or detail. And the Luminar sliders, they keep it really realistic. Like even if you take it to the max and zoom into 100, you can still see the pores and the things like, you know, fine, fine hairs on the face and things like that. Um, so it doesn't go to that extreme. And you can also do things like mask it so it only applies to a certain part and so on. So I will use the portrait AI and I can also create my own um, templates or like a preset so that if I have want to apply that same setting to the next image, I can just do that as, and apply it on the next one quickly. So it saves a lot of time because I can do the same thing in, in Lightroom. But to compare, I would say... Like if I want to do, you know, the eyes and the iris, I would have a brush. So I use the adjustment brush for that. Then I would do one on the teeth. Then I would do one on the lips. Then I would do one on the skin. And I would say it would probably take me 10 or 15 minutes to do a portrait edit. Um, and you can't automate that stuff because you can't, it's all painted in manually where the face is, right? Versus in Luminar, it's automated and you can save a template or a preset because it finds the face for you using the AI I can open the image in Luminar, click that template, and probably be done in less than two minutes, the same thing. So when we're talking about 15 minutes versus two minutes times 20 or 30 images, now it's quite a time savings. Yeah. So you mentioned your YouTube channel. This is where you do most of your tutorials about Luminar and other yeah. photography. So we're oh, on youtube.com forward slash digital photo mentor. Cool. I was surprised to, to learn how many followers you have there. <laughs> we just really? hit 10,000, so yeah. Yeah, we... you're really, I mean, I just hit 100. It's <laughs> 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 a start. Yeah, that's a start. I've not been doing much on my YouTube channel, so I was thinking these days that I should do more video. I actually got a new microphone, well, this is also for the podcast. I got a monitor for my camera. I've got a nice new um, LED light for video and so on. I got, all the, I got all the pieces. Now I just need to find ideas to, to create content. Well, and, and honestly, I mean, there's lots of technical things that I could do to improve, like, my video. Like, I'm just using a webcam, and mm -hmm. um, I could set up my Fuji, but I'm limited in my office for space and lighting and so on. And it's not about me anyways. People don't come to see my face. They come no. to see me demonstrating something, right? So it's mostly about the screen capture, and I'm usually... I'm usually the little icon in the corner as I'm demonstrating. I can show you later. I will show you my setup here, which is... I'm sure uh, it's much more sophisticated than no, mine. No, it's, it's actually not. It's actually quite simple. And I'm, I've got the setup, but I don't create content. And I, uh, I, I mean, I admire you for creating content without caring too much about... Uh, I'm a geek. I'm a nerd, so I like to, oh, I need to do this, then I need to get this and this and this, and then spend countless hours putting it all together and right. realizing, oh, just, just the other day I said, hmm, did that nice little monitor that I can put on top of the camera that I saw a review on YouTube is really cool, and I just got it, and, and now it's sitting on top of my camera 
which is nice. I can see myself <laughs> right, sharply, right. but <laughs> not actually using it for anything productive. So that I need to, to start really thinking about it, right. what to do with all the equipment I get. I'm a geek too. And if we, I mean, photographers can geek out, right? I mean, we're, we're some of the best techno geeks out there. But I also find that like when I'm, when I'm teaching, I like to actually go low tech sometimes because then it's more about, I, I want it to be about the content, right? I want to get my message across. I want to make sure that people are learning something, right? And okay, maybe my sound could be better or my picture is a little bit grainy of my face. But if I'm only like, you know, one-tenth of the frame in the corner and they're seeing my screen and they can see what I'm doing in Luminar or Photoshop or whatever, that's more important to me than absolute perfection of my technical image quality on my, on me. Absolutely. I mean, content is king and what people are there for is learning something. So that's uh, that's, that's Well, people point. tell me they like my videos, so... Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're having a great success, apparently, so... There's no denying that, and people like it. So kudos to you for growing your um, video following, which is probably um, also a great thing in a time where you cannot, cannot actually do a lot of uh, in-person teaching, right? Uh, I think that's so. also key. Like in the last year, I've been doing um, uh, workshops with camera clubs as well, like locally here in Canada and uh, U.S. groups. Like I'm open to teach anybody, right? I've been doing private tutoring by Zoom. So yes, that as well, um, because we can't get together. So we've had to figure out other ways of, of learning and connecting, right? So, you know, doing Zoom group calls, you know, we did that fireside chat where we talked about travel photography. I want to do that again and um, share images and things. And yes, I will get on Clubhouse today. I'm, I'm going to do it. I promise. When we are finished, I'm going to do it. It's fun. Come. All right, so I loved talking to you again. I mean, we, we've been chatting on WhatsApp and stuff, or maybe we did a, a couple of calls, but we, we haven't actually looked each other in the eye, even though it's remotely since for more than a year. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's been really great to, to talk to you again in a more uh, direct manner and to have you on the, on the show again. Hope. We can do it in person, maybe next year in Venice or in Canada or somewhere else, Morocco, India, Scotland, wherever our, our paths may cross. Yes. I know we have some, some places that we, we, we both love and we might find ourselves at the same time in the same place. That would be great. But Well, if you hop a plane to Canada, let me know and we'll head to wine country. Sure. Um, before we wrap this up, do you want to let people know where they can find you? You already mentioned your YouTube channel, but other yep, than that... The, the main place they can find me is on my website. It's digitalphotomentor.com and the same on YouTube. So youtube.com slash digitalphotomentor. Those are the two main places. Um, most of the things that I post on YouTube also end up on the website. Um, not everything, because there's more tutorials on Luminar on the YouTube channel. And then the website is basically everything. So I teach beginner and intermediate photographers how to take better pictures right from, you know, capturing the camera through to the editing process. So the whole, the whole shoot match. All right. It was, uh, again, it was great talking to you. I hope Good you have a, you. a nice rest of the day and to talk to you sooner than later. Bye. Thanks for having me.